Hello, beloved. Welcome back. This is Light Alchemy Podcast with your host, Lior. Episode 5. I want to share with you today a discussion around personal narrative power and the role that writing can play in healing, in developing self-awareness, and attracting what you want in your life, getting clear about your desires, all of this kind of stuff, strengthening your relationships, just everything in general, even if you know, maybe you don't have depression, you don't have anxiety, but you have goals you want to achieve. Journaling, writing, um, all of this kind of thing is tremendously powerful as a tool of transformation. And since I'm going to Texas next week, for well, I guess uh, two days uh, from now, <laughs> for the AWP conference, which is a huge annual writers conference. It's in San Antonio this year. Um, I thought this was the perfect time to be talking about this kind of thing and um, sharing the role that it's played in my life so that you can get an understanding of what is possible for you. My connection with creating and the power that creating holds for us in terms of healing and self-development. I started with language, with poetry, with creative nonfiction. I mean, that's really when I began to heal in a conscious way and to have control over the direction and the shape that my healing took. I think that this kind of society that we live in, it's, it's so easy to become disconnected from ourselves and who we really are. We're kind of trained in self-doubt. We're kind of used to listening to what other people think. I mean, as children, you know, growing up, we're kind of used to having outside language dictate the experiences that we're allowed to have, whether that's invalidating our pain or taking advantage or, you know, bullying or any amount of thing. Um, Healing doesn't happen in a vacuum. You know, it takes conscious effort and discovering self-expression through poetry and really coming to understand how I felt about things that were happening in my life helped me gain gain vision and clarity over what I wanted to change and what was acceptable and what wasn't acceptable. And that distance is what they call witnessing in, you know, a lot of different holistic practices. So it's the ability to step back from and, you know, get out of the weeds and get like a top level view of yourself, how you feel, what's going on, meta emotions, right? Big things. And from that perspective, it's easier to see the root cause. You know, it's almost like, okay, you're looking at it through this, through all of this stuff. And and then you just change and you go to a different orientation and looking from above, it kind of gives you a bird's eye view 
of, okay, I can see how this is connected now. Um, and writing is a way of holding this space. Like the imagination is so powerful. It's really incredible. It's able to hold all of these possibilities and these contradictions at one time if we allow it and we exercise it. And so by witnessing and allowing you know, ourselves to do some emotional archaeology and really writing down and charting what is happening and how you feel about it, that's living with intention. That's you are an active participant in creating your life. And that is not only a method of healing, it's also a method of getting to know who you are and directing the course of your life with purpose and passion. And I think that's so important. And it's something that we've really overlooked in this culture. I think that there is an idea that you should have to sell out and work a nine to five and have, you know, nothing really in your work that's engaging. No, your work should engage you. You should be passionate about your doing. And if you're not, like, how can you get there, right? Because it is possible. And that might be a change of perspective, perspective where now you're looking at what you're already doing in a new way. And you're bringing new energy to that. It doesn't necessarily, you know, you never know what the changes or the shifts are going to look like. But by beginning to really excavate and set time aside every day, wake up earlier. It's not a big deal, even if it is five minutes. Even if you're just jotting on your phone when you see words that resonate with you for some reason. I mean, when you collect the information, the patterns will show themselves to you because you're looking at yourself. It'll look familiar. It's not a superpower to develop self-awareness. It's really not. It's, it's difficult. It's challenging. And it takes concentration and dedication, but it's not a superpower. And everybody is able to access that. And it allows us to get out of this fear-based, you know, survival-only instinctual living that's almost unconscious, right? Like when you're, you're driving to work for, you know, and it's Wednesday or Monday. Everyone seems to hate Mondays. I fucking love Mondays. Unpopular opinion. Sue me. Um, <laughs> It's my favorite day of the week because I like what I do, you know? You should enjoy what you do. Find out what you like. Find out where you want to go. And this works in many mediums. Maybe writing's not your thing. Maybe you need to start somewhere else. I know it was something, you know, I used poetry because it was abstract language. I didn't have to be specific about what happened to me. I could talk about it in metaphors, and that gave me a little bit more space. But it was always in conjunction with other forms of art as well, and, it, and they would often go back and forth. So, you know, if I, if I felt like I had writer's block, um, I, would, I would pick up the camera and do something else. Or I would play with body paint, or I would collage. I loved to collage. Um, and especially with my own photos, it's really fun. I used to do digital collage, actually, when I was a super nerd as a little kid, because I didn't have any friends. Um, and I did online RPGs. Uh, and the super nerdy kind, it wasn't like a video game. It was like a writing game where literally we would write like these 2000 word paragraph scenes, these like epic mini novellas back and forth to each other. Um, you know, one character takes one action, one character takes another action. Yeah, it was, oh God, I loved it. I, 
the site started to die or honestly, I probably would have kept doing it. But, um, yeah. So there was a combination of right, like this really weird sci-fi version of writing, um, poetry, um, everything giving a little bit of space. I didn't get to creative nonfiction until I was in college, like, but everything giving a little bit of space at different points in my life. So that way I was able to go for whatever medium was most accessible. And sometimes that was self-portraits. Actually, often it was self-portraits. And that's really because I was so disconnected from my body. I really couldn't be present in my body. I mean, the only really real time that I felt safe was when I was like riding or I was with horses or I was with my dogs. I was, you know, I really, I had difficulty connecting with human beings. I was just so triggered by people. Um, And one of the ways that I was able to step outside of that was coming to understand my own body language as a way of understanding how I felt about something. So emotional archaeology, again, kind of digging through the psyche and discovering what is there by giving my imagination free reign. And when you get out of your own way, especially in self-portraiture, I really, I urge everybody to do self-portraiture. I don't care if it's on your fucking phone. It does not matter. You don't have to show them to anyone. You can delete them after if you want to, but it really helps you to understand how you feel, how you move through space. And I don't mean when you're trying to take a photo because, you know, you're on a paid shoot and somebody wants pinup. I mean, when you're alone and you're like, I don't know, in your dad's closet after you got a fu- into a big fight or you're, you know, at, at critical moments in your life where you're feeling something and you can't name it, seeing it is another way of witnessing. So giving yourself space by taking a photo of it and looking at it and saying, oh, okay, I understand. Like you, there's no emotion that's going to kill you, right? So just understanding it, knowing where it's coming from and what it means is a form of libera- liberation, is a way of allowing yourself to expand and move through it and let it pass through you and, and do that with grace. So, you know, because body language is, is what, 90% of our communication, right? Which if you think about it, it's covered in clothes all the time. So how much can you even see as a yoga teacher and somebody who's studied anatomy, it is real fucking hard to see unless y'all are in some tight ass clothes. And even then I'm like, "Mm, I can't really see your shoulder muscles through this. I don't know. You know, hair's got to be up. Like there's so so many uh, things that obscure how we feel on top of the fact that we are self-policing, right? Because we've been trained that there's you know, a way you have to act and you're only allowed to be sad in certain spaces and for a certain amount of time or else grief becomes depression or, you know, any number of things. Um, Giving yourself space through journaling, through self-portraiture, like that developing your voice. And there's so many ways that you can have a voice and grow into your voice. And Maybe it's recording your singing voice. Maybe it's spoken word poetry. Maybe it's just long ranting monologues that you ramble and you then play back and journal on. Or maybe you just journal. Or maybe you make collages and, you know, use words in those collages and use that as a means of accessing your emotions. Whatever it is, the more you can excavate, the more you can dig up and surface 
the less haunted we are, the more that these bodies become homes and not haunted houses. I mean, it doesn't have to feel like that. And sometimes it does. And it's not to say that there won't be new ghosts coming in all the time, but the more that we befriend ourselves and force ourselves to confront traumas, confront the the little pieces of us that are chipped off by contact with the world. This is really key in terms of not only preventing any form of dis-ease, you know, whether physical, emotional, mental, but also, like I said, in really allowing yourself to achieve what you desire and to live with purpose and passion, which I think is incredibly important. It's, I, you know, I can't express that enough. Anyway, this is supposed to be just a short introduction to a conversation that I had with um, someone that is very special to me and a very talented writer and we've known each other for a very long time so who's also a writer and so we had a little discussion on personal narrative and the way that it factors into healing and discovering the self and you know all of those kinds of things and I think you're really going to enjoy it so I'm going to play that next. I'll leave you with this. You can find his writing at roysvataji.com. That's R-O-Y-E-E-Z-V-I-A-T-A-D-G-Y.com. Do you want to expand on what you had mentioned today at lunch? Oh, sure. So you're talking about... um... Like, start from the beginning, though. Right. I took a seminar in life studies recently, and one of the first lessons that we had learned about how autobiography is written, and specifically I, first-person narrated autobiographies, and we were taught this concept called the narrated I versus the narrating I. So your narrated I is the person that is spoken about in the book as I, basically your past self. And the narrating eye is you in the moment as the writer, um, sort of putting forth your version of the events. And there's a really crucial balance that has to be struck between these two um, in order to make the narrative a little bit more rich um, and poised as an autobiography and allowed to stand alone. Hmm. I like that. <laughs> I'm just trying to think about, like, these two, the position of these two eyes in storytelling, you know, the written form as it relates to storytelling, like the internal storytelling, as in, like, the narration of your consciousness and the difference between, you know... Like what, I guess, what is the, the dichotomy broken up into then? Is it the, the body and the mind or is it the, you know? No, I think it's oriented toward how. Or is it the past self versus also the present self? Yes, like, cause you're it, also witnessing as you're doing, as it you're is, acting. It's definitely something that's on a time scale for sure. Um, I mean, your narrated eye again is, is the person in your past that you're kind of talking about and your narrating eye, I mean, 
there's varying levels to which the narrating eye can kind of appear and jump into the story. Um, but lost my train of thought. Mm. See, I'm not good at this. Mm. Um, But I was thinking of it in terms of, like, your conception of who you are right. is a story. Who, right. you, who you believe yourself to be is a story that you tell yourself as you, you know, run over your memories in your mind. Or right. as you talk about yourself to other people. Or as you share experiences. Like, there's, you know, there's what happens in life. Then there's us experiencing it. And then it's how we feel about having experienced it. Sure. And like the context that we put it into. Like the, the way that the memories relate one to the other. And how they can differ very much from your subject matter's memories. I mean, one of the big ethical quandaries in memoirs is how much of whose story are you allowed to tell? And not only that, but mm. real, coming to terms with the fact that everybody, especially in, in family situations, everybody sort of sees... You know, everyone could agree on, on the facts or the events of what happened in the family. I mean, sometimes. Sometimes. Um, but, yeah, it, it makes it a little difficult for an ethical writer, an ethical nonfiction writer in memoir, um, to achieve, you know, the real, real truth, right? Because we talk about people having their own truths and their own experiences, even given the same events or situations. People have different perspectives. Um mm. So I, I think the important thing is that if, if you're writing nonfiction or if you're writing um, an essay, especially looking at something with friends or family, you know, you have to accurately portray it to the best of your perspective. And that should stand alone. You know, there's people that are the subject matter in some of those memoirs that might not agree with every little thing. Um, or they I think see that things is completely often different. The case. Right. Or they see it completely differently. Say, yeah. Um, that they are often not aligned. Yeah. So, so every time a memoirist or an autobiographer sits down, I mean, people have to come into the picture. Other people that were close to you, that impacted you, that hurt you, that loved you, um, are all going to come into the picture when you sit down to write, you know, some sort of narrative autobiography. Um, and that's important in terms of, you know, the narrated eye and the narrating eye, because even the narrating eye has a different perspective than the narrated eye. And the way that the narrating eye describes or talks about the narrated eye can give you clues as to how the writer, you know, feels uh, about his or her past self. Mm-hmm. Um, Which I think is why writing and journaling is so crucial in a lot of mental health development, especially in terms of like things like trauma that really damage the ego and damage the ability for you to perceive yourself right. and to understand yourself like just through the act of writing not only i remember in um the body keeps the score he mentions like that therapy by itself or you know these movement practices movement therapy by themselves were not effective because you needed to you know when you journaled about it you needed to not only write what had happened but also how you felt about it like that was there was a control group there was you know they had done experiments on it but basically if you didn't 
do the extra step of, okay, this is what happened and this is how I feel about it, which is essentially what you're doing when you're writing something like memoir. Um, It allows you to kind of get a clear, unbiased picture. Like you're not covering things in your own denial. You're not, you know, hiding things from yourself. You're just, it's a really honest. Right. And physically getting it down, physically getting it down on paper or whatever on, on the keypad or whatever it is, um, are, are really good ways to at least affirm your position about something in the moment. Um, and it's always handy to keep, you know, a journal around, even, even if you just put, you know, I put notes in iPhone, you know? Yeah. Which um, I just learned this week is not safe. No, I'm sure none of it's safe. I, I guess the, the really, all whole page. the only, so the sad. only thing that's safe is, you know, is actual pen and paper. Right. Yes. Um, so just hopefully we go back to that. My journal is like my Bible. It's fine. But these can, these are certain things that, you know, I mean, I'm, I write fiction, but for a nonfiction writer, notes are incredibly helpful because, you know, you're going back to them as source material for how you felt, mm-hmm. you know, in that moment. And that's really powerful, I think, for nonfiction writers. For fiction writers, I mean, you know, when I'm out in the world and I see something that strikes me or I, I come into an idea or I just like the way a certain color makes me feel, you know, I'll jot it all down because, you know, everything can be... Um, can be useful, you know, in the future. Yeah, so, you know, you're harvesting as well in that way. I think fiction is also deeply personal and draws a lot from, which there's, I think there's something to be said about the necessity for people to be doing excavative journaling and to be writing about things that are maybe inaccessible in, you know, spoken language because it's really just a conversation with your present self um, about your past self and those experiences. Um, like that, it, although it's really necessary and really healing and really rich and valuable, um, to publish it is a whole other question entirely, you know, and like, I often go over a lot of work that I feel is sometimes my best work, but then I, I don't feel that I can put it out there because part of me is like, well, I know that the people here won't feel that they are represented in the way that they experienced it. Mm. And that doesn't invalidate my position, but I keep coming back to the question of how universal is this or how, you know, how is this going to be meaningful in a larger way that's going to outweigh maybe or or neutralize or cancel out the pain that somebody else might experience. And it's one thing if you have someone that will give you permission to participate in that and give and, you know, sign off and say, yes. But but oftentimes that's not the case. And I mean, there's certain, especially with memoirists, you know, there's certain memoirists that will go to their family members, um, and literally give them a copy or, you know, uh, a few pages of their take on this person, on this family member. Um, and will basically bow to their family members' demands to cut certain things out. So, which is like so painful. Wh- like, which is painful about silencing. Right. That's like beyond censorship. Absolutely. But. And I mean, you have the right to tell your story your way. Um, and you know, to go the extra length of passing, running everything by your family to be like, "Hey, is this okay? Is this okay? Is this okay?" And then if your family's like, "No, I don't like that. Don't like that. Don't want you to talk about that," you have to sort of sacrifice and self-edit your own version uh, of the events so that's which on one hand just as damaging it it becomes fiction in a way because the integrity of the piece is compromised right and that's assuming you even ask for permission i think most people don't for fear of 
rejection, it's just easier to assume that, oh, they might never read the book. Right. Um, and I think the relationship between writer and reader takes a little bit of precedence over writer and uh, family necessarily, especially when you're talking about nonfiction. You know, there's something called the autobiographical pact, which is strictly between the reader and the writer. And the writer makes this pact to the reader when they start out, you know, when the reader starts out and opens a book or, you know, of a memoir or something that's claiming to be nonfiction. Um, and readers sort of enter into that pact thinking, you know, this person is going to give me, you know, as unbiased an account, you know, as, as they have in their experience. While acknowledging, and you'll see this in a lot of um, introductions to certain memoirs, that the writer will acknowledge their, you know, their, their flaw and, um, and their shortcoming in terms of, hey, this is only my experience, mm-hmm. only I, you know, have this experience, and other people in this book, you know, may not, may not agree. But still, that's that's better, I think, than to edit out things that you think right. are too touchy. I mean, if you want to tell your whole truth, tell your whole truth. Um, and I think, you know, there's a whole list of <laughs> ethical questions that surround nonfiction even today because of things like that, where it's, you know, you want you want the reader to trust you. And the moment that the reader doesn't trust you, um, they you kind of lost them. And, right. and and your subject matter fails to resonate because of that. I think people's, you know, memoirs that I've read that have impacted me the most are ones that, you know, have this great emotional jeopardy and a- almost everything is at stake. Hmm. Um, because you have to, you have to make an investment in yourself that people will see as authentic, you know, when they pick up the book and read, you know? Yeah, Those absolutely. are the best ones. I feel like that's partially what becomes universal about that genre right. is the fact that it is so raw and it's like the the most raw spaces which are the ones that are most likely to be cut out are the are the ones that are most resonant and sure. end up being um, you know the most meaningful. Yeah. And, and I mean I think that's just all storytelling in general. I mean, you can write a great happy story but you know most most times in trials of perseverance are times when things aren't going so well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's what we're drawn to as writers, right? I mean, we, we want to live in that because, you know, happiness means different things to different people, but we all kind of know the feeling. I think things like depression and anxiety and existentialist, you know, ideas are um, things that we, that are more complex and that we don't explore enough often enough in general society, which is why books are great because, you know, they're kind of like windows into those experiences. And writers are typically drawn to really terrible experiences because <laughs> the more you, I mean, in fiction, the more terrible shit that happens to your characters, you know, it makes the story better because then you see how those characters respond and react um, to some really, really awful situations that you as the writer get to put them in. Um, which is where all the development happens. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Which is frustrating when you look at it, that lens on your own life and right. it's so easy to forget in moments when things are quiet and happy and easy that that you are kind of almost on pause. Yeah. You know, not everything is... And that's not to say that you're not growing, but there are moments of like escalated growth which are often in crisis and, or in response to crisis. Um, 
And I think it's that kind of zoom out larger perspective that we are lacking when we're stuck in sure anxious or depressed depressed moments or you know right but we also we also lose the bigger picture that everyone feels like this from from right time or time or another you know um and that there are many 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 people out there that feel you know similarly uh, about their place in life you know mm-hmm. um we don't exactly get to choose all the time like we you know we think we make choices but you know that choice excludes a million other possibilities. So you never know what kind of like path you're actually going to take. Um, so we might think we have choice, but then there's certain things that come into your life and happen um, where you don't have a choice. And then you realize you don't have a choice. Yeah. Right. Like you think, like I think back to like how afraid I was in the moment when you know, so I, I you know, I, I got pregnant when I was 16. I had this full scholarship to the University of Colorado at Boulder. I was going to be a veterinarian. I was going to play for the U.S. Olympic equestrian team. Like I had all of these things Big that dreams. I thought were that I thought I was trading right. in when I got pregnant. I thought that I was giving something up. Right. I really believed that that was a choice and I was making it. And it felt so powerful and I felt like such a fucking badass. And I was like. You know, like I was like guns blazing. I was like, <laughs> nobody's touching this baby. You can fuck right, off. Like right. I'm willing to throw it all into the fire. And I thought I was giving up this great big gift and to accept something else. And then I realized later, having been diagnosed with EDS and all of these other things, these these weird symptoms that people just told me was something weird about me mm. and just wrote off and just said, suck it up. And, you know, and I and I pushed myself through that. I then realized that that was never a future that was going to be available to me right? because I was right about to get really sick no matter what had happened. Right. Even if I didn't get pregnant, things were about to fall the fuck apart. Right. And this strong body that I thought was going to last me forever that felt invincible was the opposite. Yeah. And God forbid that I had fallen off, you know, and gotten injured. I mean, this I would not have recovered like living with this condition. I probably wouldn't have. And so here, like there was this. Right, I mean, you were in the middle of... appearance of of a choice. Right, exactly. I mean, you were breaking your body apart, and I think the longer that you... Not that pregnancy didn't also, but yeah, absolutely. Like, Um, I mean, riding at that level, that intensity, 10 horses a day, I could have crippled myself in a couple years. Right. And you you could be far off worse now, the longer that you stayed doing that, because you're just, you know, you're you're basically damaging a body that you don't know is rebelling yet. Right, You know, like, you didn't have that information. I mean, I had I had a lot of clues, but I had so much outside information from doctors and my family and my schoolmates and my teachers and whatever. Everyone's telling me my coaches like, you know, everyone's telling me it's all in my head and nothing is real because they can't find anything on the test. Like, you know, everything's coming up. I look normal, whatever. But yet all of these things are happening and they just kept telling me it wasn't real. And so I was determined to push through that. And I. And the one thing I do have is an extremely high pain tolerance now because of that. Because sure. I'm just used to, I'm like, oh, yeah, I, well, I, I would just run until my shin splints were so bad that I couldn't fully flex my feet anymore or mm. whatever. Like when I was doing track, like right. it didn't matter what I was in. I was just going to be in it 200% because I had to be in order to push myself through. And I mean, that's been an interesting character yeah. trait now. Yeah. 
but in the moment, like, but yeah, I just think that's so interesting and that's not the only time that that's happened in my life. Um, but I think that it's interesting to look back and to actually witness that lack of choice as like something positive like oh okay but you felt it you felt like it was a choice so it didn't so it doesn't really matter in the end if choice is real or not because your intuition is real right and it's magnetizing you towards something that you know you may be able to see later as a positive thing and your intuition in a sense is is an inner choice right like you before you even make a choice you're you intuit a choice Um, maybe the real choice is whether or not you listen to that or if you allow the outside that, that could you know, be the it. external stimulus to override what you're right. experiencing. Right. Which I think most people do because it's so easy to doubt yourself and it's so easy to assume that, well, fuck, a hundred people are telling me I'm wrong. I guess I'm like, how do you know, how do you trust yourself in those kinds of environments? Which is right. Well, I think, you know, because you live inside of your own body, I think you're, you're the authority on what you feel in your body. Right. Yeah. I um, wish we taught kids that. Yeah. Um, yeah, especially, I mean, I think to just have an awareness of that is is really important. I mean, at any age, but, you know, establishing that sort of thing, you know, with your kids. Mm-hmm. You know, let, let them know that. that, like, you know, <laughs> if they feel, you know, down or, or sad or sleepy or has have a fever, you know, to to believe in, in, in their experience because i think naturally any parent would right like your your kid's not like lying to you for a reason i mean holy shit how many times did i just get sent to school anyway i'd be throwing up in the morning she'd be like get on the bus don't let the bus driver see you do that or they're gonna send you home and you're gonna be in trouble like right i was always getting nobody cared they're like you're faking it yeah i my son the second he says he don't feel good i'm like great stay home with me yeah like we can recover together excellent Um, yeah definitely and yeah. he and you know what he doesn't lie. Yeah. He really doesn't lie to me. When yeah. something's wrong, he tells me exactly. He tells me exactly how he fucking feels about it. <laughs> he is not shy even if I am the one that is pissing him off and Right. No, that's a great level of self-awareness. I really do that. appreciate that. I wonder if I was half as self-aware as a oh, child. Oh, you, you probably were. I don't know. I think he gets from you. <laughs> probably does. From my present version of me. Maybe, yeah. Hmm. Mm. Yeah. I mean, shit. And if I if I had never had him, I would have never had kids. Because right. my doctors were like, "Yeah, you probably should. That's gonna threaten your life. So you right. know, if you're gonna do that, you're gonna be on bed rest. You probably won't live. I don't know. Don't take the risk. And, Maybe you, intu- and you intuited that <laughs> it was gonna be okay in the end somehow. Yeah, you know that's I mean? true. Against, even against when everybody all that. was like, even because even in the moment it was so high risk, and they were like, "He's ectopic." You're going to die. And I was like, oh, I feel like I won't. Um, yeah. And then they were like, mm, okay, well, he moved. We can't medically explain that at all. Mm. Yeah. And I was like, So all sometimes right, well, you intuit that kind of thing. Like, y'all thought something. Y'all were doubting. <laughs> I was like, I have one shot. <laughs> this is it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't mm. know. I would love more kids, but yeah, we'll see. I would also love to be really healthy. Yeah, I think that's, you know... And I mean, like, fully functioning. Right. Like, with l- seeing less doctors than I do. Yeah. And I think, like, knowing knowing your disease, you know, because there's, from what I've read, there's not a whole lot of, like, real thorough peer-reviewed scientific research on, on Ehlers-Danlos. 
And yeah, you, know, you probably know more than you know, you know, more than the average person, obviously. But you know, well, at I mean, least, even with the research that's available, at least online, as much, it's pretty limited. Yeah, like they they know a lot about our symptoms. They don't necessarily know right a whole lot about like it's still considered a chronic incurable illness. Yeah, which like okay, fine, fair. We're not saying that I'm gonna fucking jump out of bed and live to be 80 with you know no problems right but i mean i think that there has to be some kind of treatment that significantly improves quality of life you know and independence and mobility and all and all of that kind of thing um did you say it affects the central nervous system? Yeah. 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 So I could, that might be one of the barriers in terms of really getting a, a good stranglehold on on stuff like this is. Well, the real the real issue is that a, we don't know very much about like we think we know a lot about mental health, but we don't. We right. we they've like the DNC that like did this whole thing. They they made this whole manual. You know, they like got everything. They got all these symptoms parsed out, but like it, it's like they spent their energy on the wrong thing. Right. You're not actually looking at the ways that clusters of symptoms relate to each other and the ways in which they respond to holistic treatment and preventative treatment and ongoing lifestyle changes you know they they were just like well it's more profitable to throw a drug at each one and you know they have everything in like a fucking excel spreadsheet and right you know it doesn't it's not one size fits all it's not something that you just get a you know a chemical for and it changes and it instantly changes everything about the way you're perceiving your reality of course yeah yeah everyone's different when it comes to stuff like that like not that they can't be a valuable tool at times but i mean at the best they are a crutch right in 99 percent of cases and there's so much that people don't pay attention to in terms of the environmental factors and the ways in which the brain and the body are connected i mean i just learned you know, all of these things about the ways that, you know, they, they call your stomach the second brain mm. because it sends more information back, like more, you know, through the nerves up to the brain than it, than it receives. So like quite literally your, your gut telling you stuff is, is your gut communicating to your brain, sending huh. it messages, which is fucking bananas, I never thought of that. which explains why when I am hungry, I can't make a decision for the life of me. Like, even if it's about what I want to eat, I'll get the wrong thing. I'll get something I don't even want. And I'll, and I know it immediately it comes out and I'm like, fuck, I wanted the other thing, but I was so hungry. I couldn't even think about it. <laughs> yeah. I can attest to this. Yeah. But it's like that, that connection between these, these things that don't profit, right? These things that need to be accessible. They need to be low cost. They need to be, right. you know, community goods. All the things that don't make money for a few people. Right. Are, are really, and it's that, you know. It's not just having the community. It's not just having a purposeful life, like, you know, engaging work. It's not just, you know, having nutritious food. It's not just getting the right amount of exercise. It's like all of these things put together and, and then some, and then additional things, you know, that's like the basis for like everybody, whether or not you've been, you know, experiencing challenges or anything like that. But yeah. Mm. Being alive is weird. <laughs> Being alive is weird. Being dead's probably weird too. Or it's just nothing. I mean, yeah, or guess we'll see. Stay tuned. <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> Recording podcast episode five from the afterlife. Ooh. Ooh. That would be interesting. Listen, I'm still trying to learn how to astral travel. 
Well, I think we do that in our sleep, in our dreams. Mm-hmm. I think so, but I want to like, I want to like turn on in my dream and like realize that it's happening and then yeah, fly and shit. It's only happened a couple of times, but they were real good dreams. Yeah, that happens few and far between, but when it does, it's really nice. I mean, I often feel like I'm like present in in the dream, right? Like I'm not just like looking at yeah. something going on. Like I'm actually there with a task to do, like a whole hero's journey. Um, I love it. <laughs> yeah, it can get pretty intense. But yeah, dreams are dreams are crazy. Um, yeah, there's like various and varying explanations for what they mean but man i don't know uh, i have consistent themes though that show up in my dreams and i always wonder like if they relate in some way to life like it's always these giant winding houses where it looks like they're small on the outside and then you get inside and it's like this labyrinth and there's there's small doors and trap doors and ceiling doors and so many doorknobs and some doors that don't go anywhere and so, staircases. So Dracula's and why yes, pretty much Dracula's <laughs> castle, except there's often like a mix of different time periods happening. Right. It's like a lot of medieval stuff. Like a barn door, and then all of a sudden you're like, We're back in modern. Here's a chandelier. What's happening? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's almost always the apocalypse. Yeah. Where it's, like, post-apocalypse. I just wonder to, like, what degree, when you pick up, like, one of those dream interpretation guides or whatever, that that your dream is interpreted properly to mean this, like, one thing. Oh, yeah. Like... I don't know. You know, your teeth falling out means... I don't even know what it means. I, just I mean, I guess it one. only means something if if it if you hear it and then you're like, oh, and it makes you think of something right. in your own life that's currently happening or has happened. It was meaningful. Like, it's really only I feel like they're at best. Those are kind of like. Here's what has been reported in the past. Right. You know, like a little bit of folklore, which means there's probably a little bit of truth to it in an archetypal sense. Like, you know, there being connections to the emotions that certain symbolism evokes or represents. And so like, as long as the culture that the book was written in matches your culture perspective, that it's probably going to be decently accurate. Right. You know, even probably beyond that. But I mean, even if it's not accurate, it, it only matters if it means something to you. So sure. Which is how I feel about most of life. I'm like, yeah, if it doesn't mean something to you, then yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, this is really good advice from, from a professor of mine who, you know, so I'm a graduate student, but I have to take certain undergraduate courses um, in the English department uh, to satisfy some credits that I don't have because my first degree was not in English literature. Um, so anyway, my professor, you know, had gotten all like the, all the class together for like a last kind of class meeting. And he basically said something that really hit home for me, which, you know, was, it made rational sense to me in the past anyway. And I think I was living my life this way anyway. And he was like, if you don't like what you're doing, do something else. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you don't absolutely love what you're learning, go switch majors, do it now before you make like right, don't the wait. investment. Don't wait. Like, cause he was saying that, you know, you guys are all students in the English department and you all think you want to be editors or writers or whatever. Um, I can't believe somebody wants to be an editor. That's funny to me. 
Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, most of that. most of these guys are gonna like either go into like literary criticism or be professors themselves, probably. Yeah. Um, except for those, the territory, but. yeah. Except for those of us in the fiction or poetry or nonfiction tracks, then we're actually trying to, you know. Editing's just so brutal for me. I don't enjoy it. Yeah, I mean, I like editing my own work um, because I've always been like my own worst critic. So I edit like a fiend, you know, mm-hmm. all the time. Like you know, go over a paragraph like ten or twelve times, and then and then move on once I think that. <laughs> So I don't do the quick first draft. I don't know about you, but... I only do one draft. You only do one draft. <laughs> well, in, in poetry or also in prose? Oh, um, I think it depends. Um, because I will I will edit while writing when not excessively. But okay. to a certain degree, I will edit while writing if um, I have my source materials in front of me. But oftentimes, I'm just recording my voice. I'll just talk about what I think I want to write about. Mm. And I just do that one time, and then I, in the process of transcribing it from audio to text, I'll just you're doing little course edits. correct, yeah. yeah, like little things. But I really I don't do very I don't do big edits really ever. Mm. Last time I did that was in college, so yeah, sure, yeah, that's which I'm sure I could use. Yeah. I'm sure that would be you know a great exercise. I just it's so painful. Yeah, I get I, attached I definitely to the way things it. are. I'm like, yeah. no, I said it this way though. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I had, like, ten drafts of the story this semester that I kept giving back to my professor, and he's very meticulous about yeah, every, I, I everything that's happening. Yeah, I probably would appreciate that eye. Yeah, exactly. Me too. Yeah. I mean, at, at the beginning, I was kind of like, okay, uh, you know, I'll take this edit and this edit, but I, I don't agree with this or that. <laughs> I don't agree with this, yeah. Or I think we should change this word back because it's stronger. Sometimes um, it's important to defend what you love in your story. Oh, though, for sure. I, partially... I, think, I think that's the best kind of advice for anyone who's... Um, you know, learning to write better than their past selves or learning to write through an MFA program or whatever. Um, yeah, you have to be able to defend your your own cause. So mm-hmm. uh, I think we take it for granted. We're like, oh, well, we have to do what the teacher says and what he recommends in terms of edits. But, you know, towards the end of the semester, I was getting more comfortable kind of defending my thing and being like, hey, this is why this is in here. This is right. why this is in this here. This is valuable because... Um, and then, I mean, he would always come back and be like, well, listen, if you if you have to go out of your way to explain it, then you need to write it more clearly. Mm-hmm. And he was often right. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is great advice. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think I wouldn't want to be an editor myself, but I really admire people who can go and sit through a manuscript. Oh, and, it's such and a skill. Every sentence and every word. I mean, um, I learned I learned a lot about my own editing process and how to edit others work mm-hmm. because of because of this class. Um yeah, he was very meticulous, and he would just, until the last thing was finished, I mean, I think the best praise I got from him all semester was, we have to submit three stories uh, for the for the semester, and he emailed me, you know, I emailed him uh, a couple of revisions, and he emailed me back, and he said, okay, this one's good, this one's good to go, <laughs> and that was it, like, I, def- oh, I think I defended, you. I think I defended like a last point, and then his next email was, okay, this is good to go. Um, and to get it from from this guy, I mean, you know, after twelve drafts, fifteen drafts, and that's just me. I mean, we're we're writers at different levels. I mean, he basically treats us like we're all rookies, which we we are in a lot, in a lot of ways. Um, we are rookie writers, but everyone's at a different skill level when they enter the program, right? So some people have been published, some haven't been published. Um, some have like careers, you know, other than writing, where they're just like looking to 
find something, mm-hmm. you know, in themselves and, and publish, publish a book, like start the writing career later in life, which is awesome. Um, and then we have people who have like written things for themselves and to get into the program and then like haven't written anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's varying degrees to like the skill set, but I think that's what makes like a workshop like that really, you know, really great yeah. and work really well. Cause everyone gets the same amount of like diligent editorial attention from the, from th- this professor. Um, yeah. And everyone's work progresses at a different pacing everybody else which i think even if you're not in an in an official program like that the same or not the same but similar experiences occur when you're in a group setting where you're just storytelling like any kind of right. circling where you're sharing experiences like the ability to get feedback on clarity and to invite people to contribute to the shaping of your story so that you can get clear about what's important and right. and how you feel about things. I mean, there are so many times where I've told a story and and I needed someone to say, holy shit, that's fucked up. You know, that's fucked up, right? Like that. Are you mad at them? You should be mad at them. That's right. fucked up. Right. Like sometimes I don't even, there are many times where I, you know, had, had, had a moment of like not even realizing what had happened and needed somebody to, to right. just mirror back to me. Yeah, you dissociate. Hey, this if this was me, you wouldn't accept this. Right. So I need you to know that this is unacceptable for you too. Like it's it invites other people to kind of show you your worth and definitely help you define what things are are acceptable behavior. Right. You know, and and an acceptable response for other people to have. I think it's so easy to be not, you know, not that every person you love is an intentional manipulator, right? But that the emotional response of people to what, how you feel often does impact the way you feel about it. Oh, of course. So if it's somebody that I love who's messed up, I'm more likely to be like, oh, but, you know, and make excuses for them. Right. Because it comes as sort of a shock to you, even though. Right. I mean, subconsciously, it might not, right? Like, subconsciously... But even in in any, you know, whether you expect this person to or or not, it's like just the fact that someone that you love is capable of hurting you in this way or in any way... Right, uh, it's hard to come to terms with that. ...is difficult, I think, yeah, to, like, hold those two truths, right. these two contradictory things at because one they, time. Because they hold a typical place in your life, you know, that's mostly right. positive. But then we forget that people are not roles in our lives. They're not, not characters. Yeah. They're full human beings, which means that we are Flaws sort of, you know, there there is harm. There is risk in any contact with any person, Whether, yeah. you know, and the more self-aware you are, the less risk there is. That's harm reduction if I've ever heard of it. But, right. you know. Yeah, there's harm, there's risk, there's also beauty and, 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 we're all and answers and through learning. that process. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's that's one of the things that I think gets lost in the sort of social media age is mm-hmm. we have this idea nowadays because everybody's timelines look perfect and their Instagrams are great and right, they're doing wonderful edited, things. It's been, like, it's been edited and colorized or whatever. And... Like all that's great in in general. Like I do like Instagram as a platform for artists, you know, right, as or a, as a mode of expression, or for or for everyday people who aren't really artists to take a picture of something nice and post that on Instagram. Be like, hey, this I I took this photo, like. That that amount of yeah. that that amount of artistic pride, you know, uh, however you know, small it may be, giving uh, it, people it makes, access to creativity is, it makes a big difference. Yeah, it's important no matter what. You know? But on the other hand, obviously, with with how 
polished everybody's lives look on the internet mm-hmm. and we experience our friends lives a lot of times now through the internet because we're all working because we're all working two three jobs and trying to get by we don't really have time except for our very close friends um which is a problem Um, but there's this sort of kind of nefarious idea coming up in society where because we see everybody as perfect we not only perceive them perceive human beings as perfect but that like we expect them to be perfect Right. Or yeah. or something's wrong with you. You know what I mean? So there's, there's a lot of judgment, especially around, you know, expressing difficult feelings like right. grief, like, right. you know, any kind of loss. I mean, people just kind of turn their noses up at it and don't want to hear it. Or, you know, let's, you know, like, for example, you share something on Facebook. I don't even use Facebook. But if, if you share something deeply personal on Facebook, oftentimes the response is like, why would you put that on Facebook? Right, especially you know, like, if go it's talk really to that about, personal. You know, yeah. go see your therapist about that or whatever. Right. Which, like, okay, valid, yes, correct. You need to seek help when you're everyone having should, big feelings. Yeah, everyone should go see um, And you should also have too. friends that you can physically talk to with right. your mouth right. to, you know, express and process things. But on the other hand, it's contributing to that sanitized narrative that makes, that creates an unrealistic environment where the emotional range and the emotional spectrum of what is appropriate to be expressed or to experience is so narrow that almost everybody falls outside of it and everyone's like well fuck guess i'm depressed and anxious guess and which exacerbates itself and is a whole other thing you know i'm just mm -hmm. it's like moderation i think that's i also try to use social media responsibly like i try not to delete posts unless i'm like oh this is going to get reported. I forgot to like sure, cut yeah. off a nipple. God right, forbid right. anyone see that. Uh, you know, I try not to censor when there's arguments in the comment section. I try to leave everything, you know, up until the point where someone is being harassed and then I'm yeah, like, okay, yeah, at that this point, has gotta, you gotta go. Yeah. But I think, you know, healthy debate or even like, you know, debate that's not so kind sometimes is like worth keeping out there because, you know, one of the interesting things about social media is that there's constant reminders, right? There's constant memories on Facebook or look at what you did yeah. four or five years ago. Um, so it could always like, like I said, when, you know, bring it back around to life stories. I mean, you're here, you're, you're narrating, I narrating your present life and mm. you're looking back at this past memory of yourself and you either have like, you know, most of us are probably like, Oh my God, I can't believe I said that. <laughs> uh, most of the time. Um, yeah. and, and other people are like, Oh, I see someone who was, you know, who felt weak then, but feel strong now, or, you know, you have all these sort of like progressions in the human experience, um, you know, mm-hmm. when, when you're reminded of certain things from, you know, social media. So there are like a couple interesting facets of social media. I just it's think, I just think that we, yeah, it's a balance. And I think that people have to, um, come to grips with the fact that even though social media purports that everybody's life is hunky dory, I mean, the vast majority of people, the vast majority of the time are not feeling right 100%. and are sharing that experience but right. yet being isolated so you're getting like that it. narrow perspective um yeah. and i and i think we've we're starting to slowly eradicate this idea that human beings are deeply deeply flawed a lot of the times and hurt people for seemingly no reason um yeah. and that everyone needs you know yeah, maybe not a second chance necessarily, but like 
a chance to live inside their their experience and right. to be like, hey, that's 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 valid as well. And in taking responsibility and having autonomy over their experience, there also comes the added responsibility of, you know, like, I think the one thing that we've learned from cancel culture and this whole Me Too movement is like there there is the possibility like, yes, you need to be responsible for and held accountable for what you do. Absolutely. Um, And at the same time, we're not throwing anybody out to the wolves like it's you know, it's like go underground, get your shit together. And when you've changed and you become a better person, like come back out. We're not saying you deserve to fucking die. You just don't deserve to go on behaving this way. And I think that it's and I think that that is a cultural act of moving past shame and moving past judgment and moving right. to a place where because, because we have space for contradiction right. and allow for because evolution. That, because that offender also, you know, has all, clearly a lot of shame and a lot of... Right, uh, and probably has experiences, probably um, violent or negative yeah. experiences that, where they were a victim of right. something else. And if not them, then a past family member, you right. know, where they who, or the, who they heard stories from or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it's like I agree. these things don't come out of nowhere. Right. Like kids feel the way they feel yeah. for honest reasons and yeah. adults are just bigger kids who don't think they should listen to the way they feel so they never figure out why right. i mean it's like yeah, this absolutely. whole self-feeding cycle right and and i think like you know cancel culture definitely has its value in terms of like being hey like that we are not going to tolerate this kind of behavior from this kind of person um, from any kind of person from any kind of person right um and but I do think that there needs at some way like yeah I agree definitely you need to go to therapy and either through settlements or through you know lawyers or however you need well, to I do mean, it victim centered right whichever right. way that yeah. the victim deems is right. appropriate to the event yeah, then yeah definitely mm-hmm. um, and I think you know once that happens there needs to be a discussion because we know that in this era that you know, with, with cancel culture and me too, that, you know, a person can fall from grace very, very rapidly. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, the question is like, how, how do you integrate them back into society? Right. Because where's the redemption? Where's the redemption? Right. Because, you know, human, human beings, like, you know, not everybody deserves redemption. I don't want to like, deserves a really strong word. Um, but I know, but it is something that can be earned because on one hand it's like, you know, there are always experiences where we unintentionally or intentionally make a wrong choice or make a mistake and hurt somebody that either we love or we don't love or whatever, but somebody's hurt. And the only way to move forward from that is to agree that you want to do the work together to change whatever it was that broke down. And there's even situations where both people are the victim, which are the most confusing where nobody really knew what was going on, but both people are hurt. And how do we move forward? And that's even harder to talk about when both people are hurt, right? How do you accept both realities as valid? How do you also move forward in a way where we can, you know, establish strong boundaries and honor each other and still have a relationship while also being respectful? Yeah, definitely challenging. Definitely possible, though, I think. Yeah. All things are possible. (laughs) What time is it? Oh, we gotta go. Small correction. I said DNC and I meant DSM as in Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. (laughs) 
And in case you're wondering why that ended so abruptly, I realized I was about to be late for a doctor's appointment. (laughs) I hope you enjoyed that conversation and I hope that it resonates with you and what you're experiencing in your life. I hope that it enriches some aspect of your experience and I'm so thankful to have you here with me. Thank you for listening. I'll remind you that you can find more of my um, books in terms of recommendations. I have a little book club on my website. Um, You can find that at www.lioralay.com, L-I-O-R-A-L-L-A-Y.com. And you can find more of my artwork, self-portraiture, as well as information on, you know, self-portraiture techniques and that kind of thing on Patreon. And that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com backslash Lior Alay. Same spelling as the website. And I have a couple of workshops coming up. So just a reminder, the tickets for the film photography workshop will go up in price on the 13th of March. So if you're planning on coming to the 21st, it's a film photography workshop. All levels are welcome. You can bring your own camera. You can rent one of our cameras. We're going to have a bunch of really cool film that you can try. We're going to have horses. We're going to have a whole styled vintage blow your mind setting going on. And typically around that time, um, these rolling hills where we'll be shooting in are covered in buttercups. So if we're lucky, we'll have timed this right and everything will be in bloom, which the crocuses are already poking their little heads up. So I think that we are in the clear on that. And then next week I have March 8th, there's the erotic embodiment play shop, which is a full day experience six hours of fun and self-intimacy, consensual touch exchange, um, cuddle parties, authentic relating games, nude yoga. It's a nude friendly space. It's really going to be fantastic. And I'm hosting that with Austin's Sasha Rose Love at Casa de Euphoria. And it's actually a two-part, almost like a mini festival, you could call it, I think. I mean, it's going to have that atmosphere. I encourage you to come in festival attire. Um, well, and, and you can remove all of your attire if you prefer, but you know, you can festive adornments, we'll call it. Um, uh, I like to go all out for this kind of thing, you know, like, why not? Where else? Like, I love you. We're, we, we all love you. We're all going to accept you. Like show up as you, the most you, you can be. I, that's what I want to see. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I'm super excited for that. There is a 15% off code for couples, thruples, quads. It's love more 2020. And that's all caps. And you can use that at checkout. And there are tickets links for both of these events in my Instagram bio. They're also on the website. Um, and they will be going out in the newsletter, the monthly newsletter. It's like a love letter with nudes in it. You'll probably love it. There's a lot of butts. Everybody loves butts and poems. And, you know, and I tell you how handsome and beautiful you are and how much I love you. And, you know, it's a really good time. It's a mood boost for everybody. Um, And then you know how to get 
you know, in touch, you know what classes are going on, you know where I'm traveling to, you know what projects I'm casting for, which I'm currently focusing on the chronic illness project, um, highlighting other people with EDS, like I said in the last episode. So if you or someone that you know lives with um, invisible chronic illness, chronic pain, um, particularly Ehlers-Danlos, please get in touch with me. I would love to include your voice in this project. I love you so much. Have an awesome day.